Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, please keep your Bibles open or your phones at the requisite app, and uh, there are some headings also in the service sheet that you may find helpful. Now, as we begin, uh, let me just uh, remind us of our bearings in this letter, in the culture of their day, the church in Ephesus, and the churches in all these surrounding regions felt small and weak and insignificant. The churches in Ephesus were in the back streets, hidden away, while the massive, and it was massive, 50,000 people could gather there. The temple of Diana towered over the city. Yesterday at the wedding, somebody from Manchester was suggesting that Edinburgh was a nicer city than Manchester. I'm sure that's not true. But they said, look, there aren't many cities that have a volcanic plug with a castle on it. No, that's fair. Ephesus did. Had a mighty temple to Artemis, to Diana, the top of this hill. That's where the power was. That's where the authority was. That was where it was at. Not in the churches, in the back streets. And whether you lived in the ancient world in Ephesus, or in Manchester, or in Edinburgh, it does not feel like, in this room this morning, compared to what everybody else thinks, and what else is going on in this city, that this is, i.e. here, where it's at. This doesn't feel or look like that. Never has, never will. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus and to us over time. It applies to us. 
to teach them what an astonishing thing it is to be a Christian, what an astonishing thing it is to belong to a church, what an astonishing thing the church is in the world. Paul wants to remind them and us that it's in the back streets, in the churches, in the lives of Christians, where God's power, which is above every other power, and God's plan, which is over every other plan, is unassailable and glorious, and that we are part of it. And so Paul unpacks in chapter 1 all the riches we have in Christ. And he's going to do the same thing now in chapter 2. But Paul has a big concern. And as a preacher or a minister, you feel that concern. Paul, when he writes his letter and explains to these Christians who they are in Christ, and explains to these Christians, and we're on this ground this morning in chapter 2, what it is we once were, who we now are, and what it took on God's part to get us from there to there, that it enters our heads, confirms what we know, but doesn't profoundly affect us. I was up in Dingwall this week at a Christian convention, and apart from eating endlessly and preaching every five minutes, I got to spend the week with a man who was the other speaker on the conference, and it struck me over the course of the week that this man really knew God. When he spoke of spiritual things, it deeply affected him. He understood, he experienced, he had a consciousness of the gravity of sin. And when he spoke of grace, You would never hear him explain grace. You would hear him convey the sheer goodness and graciousness of God that in spite of us, out of his great love, he has, as he put it when I was speaking with him, wrenched him, wrenched us with the resurrection power that wrenched Christ from death to life has brought us from a state of death to life, from condemnation to none. So Paul's big concern, and Andy Robertson preached on this last week. Do listen online to that sermon if you missed it. Paul teaches theology, and then he prays that we will understand it and be deeply affected by it. And that prayer at the end of chapter 1 is uh, what I want to pray now as we move into chapter 2. So let's do that. Our Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, will you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, that we may know 
deeply know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we might understand the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. May we grasp the immeasurable greatness of Jesus' power towards us according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, you're all with me now in the sense of the burden that I have in my heart that this will not merely enter our heads but enter our hearts. That is a risky thing, though. And I need you to to work with me, to be open to that, to pray for that. I'd love us when we get to sing these marvelous words at the end, Amazing Grace, that nobody's mind in this room is drifting to lunch, that nobody's mind in this room is drifting to something more trivial than being saved from an eternity in hell. Now, three simple points, and finally I found a three-point sermon with alliteration. I've been searching for one for some time. Here we go. Interestingly, at the convention last week, every sermon of every other speaker had three points with alliteration. I was all over the shop. Who we were, who we are, how it happened. It's great, isn't it? Simple. I'll get a big tick tomorrow when we review our sermons. Now, remember Paul is writing to Christians. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you are intellectual or not, whether you are from this side of the world or that side of the world, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, whether you are 10 or 90, if you are a Christian, this is who you all were and who you now all are and how it happened. We're all in the same boat. If you're not a Christian, and you may be here and are not a Christian, and uh, it's great you're here, especially with a passage like this, which describes exactly what a Christian is, you might change these headings from who we were, who we are, and how it happened to, I guess, who you still are. And then second, who you can be and how grace alone. So who we were before we became Christians. Let's read verses 1 to 3 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among those, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, who 
were we before we were Christians? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were dead. Spiritually dead. Spiritually dead to God. Not physically dead. We may have looked very much alive. We may even have won an Olympic gold medal and have sparkled with vitality and energy. But spiritually, we were dead. Now, it's important we get the weight of this. Here's the first God-willing answer to our prayer. We were not asleep. We were not ill. We were not dying. We were dead. We had no connection with God. We had no personal relationship with God. It is often said that our culture or society is becoming more spiritually sensitive or aware or hungry. Now, it may be true that people are becoming more reflective or asking more questions about meaning and life, or even becoming more religious, but we should not be taken in. It cannot be that people are really moving towards God because they are dead. Dead bodies are lifeless. They cannot respond. They don't get hungry. They don't speak. They don't answer. You were dead to God. That is who you were. That is who every person is before they become a Christian. Every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Paul makes that crystal clear. In verses 1 and 2, he is addressing the Christians in the church in Ephesus. You, in verse 3, he changes the pronoun we all. In other words, Paul includes himself, the greatest theological mind who has ever lived was dead. And the very end of verse 3, like the rest of mankind. Now, how did we get that way? When is it in life that we became spiritually dead? The answer is that we are born spiritually dead. The second half of verse 3 We were by nature, Paul writes, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, that's very important and very sobering. You and I were born spiritually dead. Sin is in our nature. It's not that uh, we're born and then somehow learn to sin. Many of us here are parents. And this is often used at this point to illustrate this, and, uh, it, and it, people sort of laugh a bit, but it's actually a really serious illustration of this. What you do if you are bringing up children is teach them or try to teach them not to sin. You never have to give them a lesson in greed or envy. 
and they're born into that. Now, that is a shocking thing, I guess, in our culture to say that children are born sinful and rebellious. Shocking. Except that every single person knows that it's true. From the day we were born, we come under the power of a triple tyranny. Before we were born, it's in our nature. And that triple tyranny is the world, the devil, and the flesh. I wonder how much you have thought about that. Every message we hear in our culture is about affirming the individual, about how every person is special with great potential. We are spiritually dead, captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 1 that we would grasp this, feel this, be deeply affected by it. If we don't, we will never feel the urgent need of a Savior, nor appreciate God's grace in sending us one. And if we, as Christians, think little about who we were, what we have been saved from, we will live all of our Christian lives, yes, perhaps with salvation assured, but on the edge of what it truly means to feel and be affected by grace. So what were we captive to by nature? One, the world. The key phrase is there in verse 2, following the course of the world. We might say the worldview of sinful humanity. Now, let me draw here on the insight of some writers who have thought in depth about what the Bible exposes as the worldview of sinful humanity. On the one hand, and perhaps embraced more by older generations, maybe this is a generalization, but I think there is some validity in it. On the one hand, a worldview of humanity embraced perhaps by older generations would be that of family responsibility, duty, and good work. And, and we think that is good, surely. Surely family and duty and good works in a culture and a society is a good thing. Yes, and I, I agree, I understand that, but all of that does nothing to change our diagnosis of spiritual death. Many people, most people that we know, I guess, take their responsibilities to their families and friends seriously, do their duty, do good works, but have absolutely no awareness of their need of a Savior. That worldview has captured their minds and hearts. They are blind to the fact, the feeling, that they are spiritually dead and in desperate need of a Savior. On the other hand, and perhaps embraced more by a younger generation, is the assertion of personal autonomy that I do as I please. I live as I wish. I find pleasure where I desire. I determine my own path in life. I am the center of my world. I had a conversation along these lines with someone at the wedding yesterday. And they were questioning, I guess, what I had said. And what they were saying to me was what I have just said. I am the center. Everyone is the center. And I said to them, what have you found? And they said to me, 
And it was a sobering comment. Nothing. Captive to the tyranny of the world, but also secondly, captive to the supernatural tyranny of the devil. Verse 2b following. This is cheery stuff, isn't it? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is Paul's way of describing in language that would resonate with the culture of Ephesus, the devil or Satan. Elsewhere in scripture, he is referred to the prince or God of this world. Every person by nature is ruled by the devil. His spirit, a spirit of rebellion against God, is in every human heart, dominating, controlling their life. Think of your life like a ship. Before you became a Christian, the devil, Satan, was at the bridge. Captive to the cultural tyranny of the world, captive to the tyranny of the devil, third, captive to the cravings of our flesh. Verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This has many manifestations, I guess, lust, greed, envy in our nature. Now, whenever I have done evangelism with anyone who is not a Christian, read the Bible with them, no one has ever, ever said to me or concluded, nor me with them, that we are not to the very core of our beings sinful as people. Where people stop in terms of searching for salvation is that I'm not as sinful as them or I'm not sinful enough. But sin runs to the very core of our being. And God's assessment of us as humanity before we turn to Christ is that we are captive to the tyranny of the world, captive to the prince of this world who holds our hearts, who blinds our eyes, who stops our ears, and captive to the cravings of the flesh. Now, just to anticipate where we are about to go, as Christians, we still experience the cravings of our flesh. But there are three differences. One, the power over us has changed. Two, we now feel shame. One of the speakers at the conference this week was speaking from Jeremiah about the state of our culture, or in many places, the state of the church. And Jeremiah speaks about how they turned from God and felt no shame. No shame. When the Holy Spirit awakens you, your conscience comes alive. And as Christians, thirdly, we now live with a promise that one day we will be free of these desires. Now, who were we before we became Christians? Dead, by nature, and captive to the tyranny of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And therefore, and most sobering of all, Verse 3b, by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's use of the word children is simply to contrast with his description of Christians earlier as adopted children of God. And we mustn't rob what Paul says here of its seriousness. Now, if you are not a Christian listening to this, you may find this, you, your hackles might be up. But this is what 
God's Word says as to who we are before we are Christians. We are children of wrath. That we have over our heads the everlasting, settled, righteous, just, measured anger of a holy God. Everybody did before they became a Christian. And we live out our days on this earth with little or no regard to the everlasting hell that is in the world to come. Before we became Christians, we may have heard sermons about Jesus' death. And up in the highlands of Scotland, far more people still go to church. And one of the people I was chatting to at length through the week had heard many sermons about the agony that Jesus endured on the cross. And these sermons had moved that person in some way as they reflected and thought about someone who would do that for others. But it, in conversation with them, had never crossed their mind that the agony that Jesus endured on the cross which was not physical as much as spiritual, the wrath of God. It had never crossed their mind until now that they would bear that same agony for all eternity if they remained dead to God. And of course, when they became aware of that, it was evident as plain as day that they were deeply affected by that. Now, let's consider who we now are. <laughs> One of my Bible commentaries this week said, just a little footnote to young preachers, and I still just make it into that bracket. And uh, uh, they said, uh, young preachers, uh, don't rush past verses 1 to 3 to get to but God. If you don't have much time, spend three quarters of your time on verses 1 to 3. It's <laughs> good advice. We spent half time. But you see the temptation to get to but God. Now, let's look at who we are. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God, were it not for God and his initiative, his mercy, and his love, we would still be in the realm of verses 1 to 3, spiritually dead and children of wrath. Now, this is what Paul is trying to say. It takes some power 
to make someone who is spiritually dead alive. Think of it like this. And you get this, I guess. It takes, or would take, some power to make somebody who is physically dead alive. When as far as I'm aware, the mortality rate is still running at 100%. No medical science could administer anything to a dead body and make it alive. And the same parallel is spiritual. No rhetoric, no religion, no works, no status, no hierarchy can make someone who is spiritually dead alive but God. Being rich in mercy, out of his great love, did. The power that is needed to make someone spiritually dead alive is God's power. Now, just look back with me to Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 1. Paul is praying for Christians, for us, that we might know, really know, in the sense of deep appreciation, grasp, and experience. And we read this earlier. Just let me show you what he's doing. Chapter 119, we might know, you might know, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us to believe according to the working of his great might, How do you know how powerful God is? Well, he worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, Paul has one chance, one chance to convey in that prayer, how do you know, how will you grasp just how powerful God is? This is how powerful he is. He took the Son of God who died bearing sin and wrath and judgment for all humanity who trusted in him. And God wrenched him out of that depth of darkness and death to life. That's how powerful God is. That's what Paul prayed we would know. And you see, in our passage, chapter 2, what does Paul say? What is the power that has made you alive in Christ spiritually. It is not like the power that raised Jesus from death to life. It is exactly the same power. So when God raised his son out of wrath to glory, out of death to life, that same power has raised you from spiritual death to life. Not only that, that your resurrection to become spiritually alive is part of Christ's resurrection. That's what unity with Christ means. He was raised, you were raised, He was raised in you, you were raised in Him. That's hard to explain. It's a very wonderful thing. And where have you been raised to? Paul says in our passage, to the right hand of God the Father. But you and I are sitting here. God isn't here. There's no thrones either. Your soul, your status, your citizenship, your eternity is there. You are sitting here. 
Your flesh and blood are in this world, but your soul, your eternity, your citizenship is with God in heaven and his Son. One of the remarkable things about Ephesians is that Paul says you and I have exactly the parity of Jesus Christ. It's astonishing. That is who you are. Every single Christian has experienced. Now, it's not that we feel it or that we're singing or flying or any of that stuff. I mean, Christ wasn't when he was resurrected. He just walked around and taught. But you and I have experienced the immeasurable greatness of the power of God no less than that which resurrected his son has resurrected you from death to life. And so I hope you are appreciating with me that becoming a Christian is not a decision that we take in life to better ourselves. Now, you might well feel that as a Christian that you know who you are, that you are spiritually alive in Jesus, but you are still faithful as I am, much more than my wife, but I am, that we have to die physically. I guess that's because I see people die physically quite often. Why does God not save us from that bit? Two reasons. One, because the presence of death in this world is the most powerful apologetic to humanity to do something. Every graveyard, every crematorium, every time I stand up here and say that somebody has died, my prayer is that somebody will turn to Jesus while there is time. The other reason that God has not saved us yet from physical death is that until his son returns again, the devil, while defeated, still holds sway in the world. But I will stand at Joan Burt's funeral service and with the words of Jesus, mock Satan. And I will look him in the face, as it were, and say, death has no sting, for she lives. Thirdly, how has it happened? The most quoted verses in the New Testament. This is what goes on your tea towel, on that little plaque in your bathroom. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 doesn't, but it should. Imagine that on a tea towel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved from faith, and not by your own doing. Grace means something like undeserved favor or kindness. What? It's free? Yes. What? I can't do anything? Please let me contribute a bit. No, you can't. That runs uh, like a, a juggernaut against our human nature. 
There are so many references in these verses to the kindness of God. Now, in all of this, you may feel there's a severity to God here, but listen to what he says. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead, he made us alive by grace. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show us the riches of his grace and kindness. Grace means undeserved favor or kindness. And grace also means it's all from God and nothing from us. Getting us from who we were to who we are is 100% what God has done. We've done nothing, even faith. Faith, which is to accept uh, the gift of salvation as a gift from God. That's what he says. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of your own doing, neither grace nor faith. It is the gift of God. So no boasting at lunchtime. No boasting that I'm better than them. No boasting, I've been to church 23 million times. No boasting that I help out with tear fund. No boasting that I'm a minister. No boasting. And Paul is not being provocative here. He is not raising questions in our minds. He is seeking simply at this stage in his letter to give you and me absolute assurance of our salvation. You contributed nothing to it. That is not God mocking us or robbing us of our dignity as human beings. It is saying to you and I, when you face all eternity ahead of you, you can have absolute assurance of your salvation. It's all God, but God, verse 4, made us alive, verse 5, By grace, verse 5, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, verse 8, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created by God for good works. Now, if you are a Christian, and with this we close, you are the workmanship of Jesus. You have been created, brought to life from spiritual death in order to do good works. You have not been brought from spiritual death to life by or through doing good works. And so if you are basing your salvation in any way on who you are and what you have done, then you are standing on sinking sand, quicksand, danger all around. Now, when we get to chapters 4 to 6, we'll see what these good works are. You need to wait till the 8th of November for that. Who we were, who we are, how it happened, grace alone. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that what Paul has written has in some way affected you, has deepened your love for Jesus, your thankfulness for God, your understanding of the depth of your salvation. If you're not a Christian, and you are coming to understand the urgent need of salvation... Then let me leave you with this. If that is true of you, and I don't know if it is, that is not in any way my persuasive rhetoric or lack thereof. Because how on earth could I make a dead body come alive? If you are beginning to see, if your indifference is less than it was, Maybe you're young here and you've listened to sermons, but you've just drifted off. 
always shocks me on a Sunday when I look out and somebody is asleep. That does shock me, if I'm honest. This is serious stuff. If God is opening your eyes and softening your hearts to receive the gift of salvation, that's no preacher that's done it. It's the Spirit of God bringing you back to life. So, if that is happening, turn to Him and believe in Him. Let's pray. Father God, these are sober and serious things, but they're very wonderful. Very, very wonderful. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found blind. But now I see. And when we've been there in eternity, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's grace than when it all began, when you brought us back to life. Might it be that that is happening to somebody, whether young or old in this room, If it is, then flood their hearts with saving grace and the capacity of faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. We pray with the earnestness of Paul in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.